Greetings, students. As always, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled, The Era of Reform. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak, and turn to the first slide, Reform Movements. Most reform movements were driven by evangelical religion inspired by the Second Great Awakening. Many of these modern idealists dreamed of a perfected society. They desired to reaffirm traditional values as society plunged into a more complex world of transforming market economies. Women were particularly prominent in reform crusades, especially in the struggle for suffrage. These reform movements offered many middle-class white women opportunities to escape the confines of the home and enter public affairs, but they did so using the language of religion to shield their efforts from criticism that their gender barred them from politics. The major reform issues that we will cover are the abolition of slavery, temperance or prohibition, the war on alcohol, women's rights, including divorce, property rights and suffrage, education reform or better public schools and more inclusive access to higher education, peace movements, ending wars based on Christian morality, mental illness, building asylums for the mentally ill, and prison reform, the push for reformatories rather than punitive institutions and ending imprisonment for debt. Please advance to the next slide entitled anti-slavery. The anti-slavery movement, which had been around since the Quakers in the 1780s, is different than abolitionism. Most anti-slavery advocates had agreed on gradual emancipation, usually in the form of compensation for slave owners to free their slaves. But many whites, North and South, were extremely racist and did not want to live near or interact with African Americans. So the question became, what would be done after the slaves were gradually freed? Some of these movements focused on colonization or the transporting of some blacks back to Africa. To facilitate this, the American Colonization Society was founded in 1817. This organization realized they needed a specific colony in Africa where the freed slaves could be sent. This led to the creation of the Republic of Liberia on the West African coast in 1822. Over the next four decades, 15,000 freed blacks were transported to Liberia, and on average, it took about $40,000 to transport just 400 freed people to Liberia. Now, how do you think most African Americans felt about colonization? That's right. They did not wish to be transplanted into an unfamiliar environment. They had been born here. Their parents and grandparents were buried here. They knew the fields, the forests, and the creeks. They believed they were part of America's growth, and they had a uniquely American culture. But by 1860, virtually all Southern slaves were native-born Americans. Colonization only appealed to some Northerners and many prominent politicians, like Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln. And look at the image here on the PowerPoint. Whose signature do we see? Our good friend, James Madison. So presidents and common people believed that blacks and whites could not exist in a free society. 
most Americans also feared racial mixing. It is continually cited in their letters to one another. They called race mixing, quote, mongrelization, a very pejorative term. Many Americans believed blacks were inferior, and they did not want them in large numbers in their states. So the point to take away is anti-slavery does not mean anti-racism. Please advance to the next slide entitled Abolitionism. Abolitionism emphasized the immediate emancipation of African Americans, and it arose in the 1830s and is very different than anti-slavery. The Second Great Awakening had convinced abolitionists of the sin of slavery. Abolitionists were inspired when Great Britain emancipated their slaves in the West Indies in 1833, and theoretically the French had ended slavery during the French Revolution, though it did not work out in practice. One of the most famous abolitionists was William Lloyd Garrison, who published the newspaper The Liberator. In his first issue, in January 1, 1831, he wrote, quote, Let Southern oppressors tremble. Let their secret abettors tremble. Let their Northern apologists tremble. Let all enemies of the persecuted blacks tremble. I am aware that many object to the severity of my language, but is there not cause for severity? I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, I do not wish to think or speak or write with moderation. No, no. Tell a man whose house is on fire to give a moderate alarm. Tell him to moderately rescue his wife from the hand of the ravisher. Tell the mother to gradually extricate her babe from the fire into which it has fallen. But urge me not to use moderation in a cause like the present, for I am in earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single each, and I will be heard. I love that article. Well, few Northerners read The Liberator, but Southerners made a big deal about it. Abolitionists were always a minority in the North, but they were a loud one. They demanded the virtuous North secede from the wicked South. They described the Constitution as a devil's compact. Some abolitionists never explained how to specifically end Southern slavery, so they were criticized by some for not offering any solutions. Arguably, the greatest of the abolitionists was Frederick Douglass. He was a former slave who had lived in Maryland and who had escaped slavery at the age of 21. He published the North Star, his own abolitionist newspaper. When detractors said that he was too eloquent to have ever been enslaved, he wrote the book, The Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, published in 1845. In it, he described his life as a slave, his struggle to read and to write, and his escape to the North. Douglass, though, was flexibly practical, in contrast to Garrison, who was stubbornly principled. Douglass looked to politics to end slavery. He backed a third party, the Liberty Party, in 1840, and the Republican Party in the 1850s as a way to achieve this. Eventually, most abolitionists, including the pacifist Garrison, would support the Civil War to end slavery. Douglas was later instrumental in convincing President Lincoln to use black troops during the war. As with most reform movements, women were pivotal for the pushing of abolitionism. Women raised money. They distributed literature. 
and they collected signatures for petitions to Congress. One of the least known, but I believe greatest abolitionists was Sojourner Truth. Now, click on her name on the PowerPoint, and you should see a YouTube video come up of her speech, Ain't I a Woman, performed by the actress Carrie Washington. So, take a look at that and come back. Okay, you're back? That was great, right? Well, the American Anti-Slavery Society is an organization that was founded by Garrison, Douglas, and a man called Arthur Tappan in 1833. By 1838, the society had 1,350 local charters with around 250,000 members all committed to the abolition of slavery. But later on, the organization would eventually split along gender lines over the issue of women's rights. Another pair of abolitionists I want you to know is Arthur and Louis Tappan. They were two wealthy New York silk merchants who funded the society as well as the Liberator, the Lane Seminary in Cincinnati, and Oberlin College, a college that espoused abolitionist principles. Wendell Phillips was an ostracized Boston patrician called the Abolition's Golden Trumpet. He was perhaps the most important abolitionist and had a major impact on politics during the Civil War, and he argued for a war of emancipation to defeat the South. He is one of the finest orders of the 19th century, and another product of the puritanical fervor of the Second Great Awakening. He followed Garrison's views until political reason took him in a new direction of practical politics. Now, another pair of abolitionists I want you to know is Angela and Sarah Grimke. They are the only white women in, from the South to become leading abolitionists. They were banned from ever returning to their homes in South Carolina. They were also heavily involved in women's rights, and Angelina married Theodore Weld, a famous abolitionist. Another abolitionist I want you to know is David Walker, an African-American and a militant advocate of armed struggle. He wrote The Appeal to the Colored Citizens of the World, published in 1829, which advocated the bloody end to white supremacy. And he had a price on his head from southern slave owners, and when he died of pneumonia, many thought he had been assassinated. There's another African-American abolitionist you should know called Martin Delaney. He's one of the few African-Americans to seriously advocate the mass black recolonization of Africa. And there's actually a long strain in American history of what we call the Back to Africa movement with men such as Marcus Garvey and Malcolm X. The next abolitionist I need you to know is Theodore Dwight Weld. He was evangelized by Charles Grandison Finney in New York's burned-over district in the 1820s, and he appealed to rural audiences of uneducated farmers. He traveled with his followers, preaching abolitionism in the Old Northwest, and he wrote the book American Slavery As It Is, published in 1839. It was one of the most effective abolitionist writings, and it directly inspired Harriet Beecher Stowe. As I said before, Weld married Angela Grimke, and together they were a formidable couple. One of the most famous pieces of abolitionist literature was the book Uncle Tom's Cabin, published in 1852 
and written by Harriet Beecher Stowe. It is a fictional account, but it passionately attacked the, quote, Christian principles of Southern slave owners. Southerners were outraged, especially since Stowe lived in Maine. Now, she had previously lived in Cincinnati, just across the river from Kentucky, but she had never been in direct contact with slavery, so she used Weld's book as evidence. In the book's first year, it sold over 300,000 copies. It was the second best-selling book of the 19th century, only behind the Bible. It was printed in multiple languages and adapted to the stage, and it brought slavery into the domestic realm and made Southerners even more defensive. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Unpopularity. Abolitionists, especially Garrison, were deeply unpopular in many parts of the North. Many Northerners debated about whether or not slavery was sanctioned in the Bible. They specifically referenced the curse of Ham, the fact that the Israelites had slaves, the fact that one of the apostle letters from Paul tells slaves to return to their masters, and that the great patriarchs like Abraham themselves had slaves. And what's interesting is each one of these points could have been written word for word by a southern slave owner, as we will see in a few lectures. While the issue of the biblical sanction of slavery was left up to debate, Northerners well understood that slavery was, unfortunately, constitutionally protected. Northerners were brought up to revere the Constitution, and slavery was protected and part of that lasting bargain. Northerners also held the idea of a union very near to their heart, and this was advocated by great statesmen like Daniel Webster. It is very hard for us to understand, but the Union and the Constitution were seen as almost holy concepts. So if you believe the Union is most dear, then Garrison's pleas to disunite were seen as dangerously radical. In addition, the North was dependent on the South for its economic well-being. Northern bankers were owed about $300 million by Southern planters. New England mills were fed by Southern cotton. Northern ships transported cotton to England. Companies like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, and the Canal Bank of Louisiana estimated that between 1831 and 1865, they accepted 13,000 slaves as collateral and ended up owning about 1,250 slaves. And these two institutions, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, exist to this day and refuse to pay reparations. Insurance companies like New York Life and Aetna sold insurance policies on slaves, and again, both exist to this day. Nearly a hundred insurance companies and banks were linked to the slave trade, and the profits they have made to this day were built on the backs of human misery, and this, ladies and gentlemen, is the long arm of history. Well, abolitionist agitation created a wave of mob violence across the North. Lewis Tappan's New York house was ransacked in 1834 to a cheering crowd. In 1835, Garrison was dragged through the streets of Boston with a rope tied around his neck and he had to be arrested to save his life. One of the most famous abolitionist martyrs is Elijah Lovejoy, the militant editor of the anti-slavery newspaper in Illinois. His printing press was destroyed four times and each time he bought a new one. 
Well, the last time, he decided to arm himself and stayed in his warehouse. And one night, a cowardly mob set fire to his warehouse, and when he emerged with a pistol, he was shot, and his printing press was destroyed and thrown into the nearby river. Some northerners were horrified. A northern white man had been killed over southern slavery, and Lovejoy became an abolitionist martyr, and the cause grew, though so did opposition. Many ambitious politicians, like Abraham Lincoln, avoided abolitionists, since abolitionism was considered political suicide. A good example of how constitutional rights were suppressed to maintain the status quo is the gag rule, which lasted from 1836 to 1844. For years, abolitionist petitions signed by more than 2 million people had inundated Congress after the establishment of the American Anti-Slavery Society. The gag rule, supported by pro-slavery congressmen, postponed the consideration, printing, and referral of such petitions. This essentially meant they were thrown into a desk drawer and is a poignant example of the violation of the First Amendment and the right to petition Congress. The gag rule was finally repealed by a House group led by the former president, John Quincy Adams, and that is why JQA is the best. By 1850, more people began warming up to abolitionism, or at the very least, moderate anti-slavery. This was fueled by a renewed debate over the extension of slavery into the territories. Northerners also saw the violence towards abolitionists as proof that the proponents of slavery were using extra-legal means to suppress dissent. Many disliked the suppression of free speech in the gag rule, and many believed slavery was unjust, undemocratic, and barbaric. As a result, Northerners opposed the extension of slavery to the newly acquired territories, and this opposition to slavery's extension was called free soil. Free soilers swelled their ranks during the 1850s, but that is a story for another day. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Alcoholic Republic. Temperance is the movement to persuade people to stop drinking alcohol. Drinking had always been part of European culture. Since water could taste bad, it could be dirty, and you wanted to add calories. The pace of work allowed for this. You would wake up, have breakfast, grab a mug of brown beer, work till lunch, have a beer with lunch, work, have a beer with dinner. But improvements in distilling and a need to use crops led to the production of strong whiskey. So while you can function on three beers a day, you can't function downing whiskey for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. By the 1830s, the annual per capita consumption of pure alcohol was seven gallons per year. Most bottled liquor today is 50% alcohol, so this would be like drinking 15 gallons of Jack Daniels per year. And Jack Daniels comes in fifths, so this would be like drinking 75 bottles of Jack Daniels a year. And that's a lot of booze. Now, think about all the people who didn't drink, which means that the ones who did overcompensated for the rest. Thus, alcohol abuse was rampant in 19th century America. Abusers included women, clergymen, and members of Congress. Alcoholism decreased the efficiency of labor 
while increasing injuries in the workplace, and women and children were exposed to physical danger from abusive husbands. Nativists led the movement because the perception was that immigrants were the heavy drinkers, so this was used as a way to attempt to control the immigrant population. One temperance society asked people to pledge that they wouldn't drink by signing a paper and writing a T, thus pledging total abstinence, and this is the origins of the word teetotaler. The American Temperance Society was formed in Boston in 1826, and within a few years, 1,000 local groups emerged. They urged drinkers to give up alcohol and organized children's clubs. T.S. Arthur wrote a book, Ten Nights in a Barroom and What I Saw There, published in 1854, and he described in shocking detail how a secure village was transformed by a tavern. It was the second bestseller of the 1850s behind Uncle Tom's Cabin. Two major strategies emerged to battle alcohol. Temperance, which was the moderate use of alcohol, but also the illegalization of alcohol. Neil S. Dow was known as the father of prohibition, and he sponsored the Maine Law of 1851, which prohibited the manufacture and sale of intoxicating liquor. By 1857, 12 states had passed various prohibitory laws, yet during the same decade, many laws were repealed or declared unconstitutional. So the results of this movement were as follows. There was much less drinking among women than earlier. There was less per capita consumption of hard liquor. Temperance was the least sectional of all reform movements, and it included abolitionists like Garrison and pro-slavery defenders as well. Please advance to the next slide, entitled Women's Suffrage. What was the accepted role of women in the early 19th century? It was known as Republican motherhood. Women were seen as the keepers of society's conscience, with a special responsibility to teach children how to be good, productive citizens. Sexual differences were increasingly emphasized in the 19th century as a result of the Industrial Revolution. The burgeoning market separated men and women into sharply distinct economic roles. Women were seen to be physically and emotionally weak, but also artistic, virtuous, spiritual, and refined. In the early 19th century, there was also a set of beliefs about women in the home called the cult of domesticity. Women were supposed to be homebound, moral, religious figures of the family while the husbands worked in the corrupt marketplace. Some women wanted to break away from the role of homemaker and participate in the public world of men. And in the years before the Civil War, women became more active in the public sphere. Efforts to moderately improve women's lives and advocate women's suffrage was called first wave feminism. Now, feminism has become a dirty word since the 1970s, when members of the far right depicted feminists as crazy bra burners. And you will probably see a lot of hysteria about gender equality and critiques of toxic masculinity. So let's do a quick test. How many of you believe women should be allowed to marry who they want? 
How many of you believe a woman should be allowed to file for divorce? How many of you believe a woman should be able to have their own bank accounts? How many of you believe women should be allowed to work any job they are qualified for? How many of you believe women should be able to go to any college, take any college major, or any college class that they qualify for? How many of you believe women should not be touched without consent? Congratulations, you are all radical feminists, and according to some, you are bent on destroying the American family. And as a quick note, I have seen recent videos by evangelical preachers saying women should go back to the home and not be allowed to vote. And these idiots are supported by people by like Ann Coulter, and they should loudly be decried. Many women's rights advocates also became abolitionists. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott were abolitionists who attended the World's Anti-Slavery Convention in London in 1840. They and other women were barred from participating. So in response, eight years later, July 1848, they helped organize the Seneca Falls Convention in New York. This was attended by 61 women and 34 men, and it produced a Declaration of Sentiments for women based on the language of the Declaration of Independence. It stated, quote, All men and women are created equal. He has never permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise. He has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she had no voice. And one resolution formally demanded women's suffrage. This launched the modern women's rights movement, and it became an object of scorn and denunciation from the press and pulpit alike to this day. Female reformers advocated women's suffrage and other increased rights for women. What they demanded was not radical. They wanted the ability to divorce abusive husbands, the ability to take custody of children from abusive husbands, the ability to give testimony in court, the ability to control their property that they brought into the marriage, and at the most extreme, the right to vote. There are several women's rights advocates I want you to know. Susan B. Anthony, a Quaker woman, and protege of Stanton, who was a militant lecturer on women's rights. The Grimke sisters, Angela and Sarah, the powerful writer and fierce public advocate who argued against slavery and in favor of women's rights. Lucy Stone, she helped organize the first women's rights convention in 1850. She was an avid abolitionist but broke with male counterparts after the war over the dispute over women's suffrage. She retained her maiden name even after she was married, and women who followed her example were known as the Lucy Stoners. Amelia Bloom popularized the wearing of a short skirt with Turkish trousers, and bloomers were challenged to be too masculine and to convey immorality. The women's movement was largely overshadowed by events of the era. Yet women gradually were admitted to colleges, and beginning in Mississippi in 1839, they were allowed to own property after marriage. But not everyone was on board with women's rights, like Harriet Beecher Stowe's sister, Catherine Beecher. She advocated that women needed to be defenseless, submissive, and dependent, lest they lose their protected status and femininity 
and we will see her rhetoric is used throughout history, especially in the 1970s, when conservative women led by Phyllis Schlafly successfully defeated the Equal Rights Amendment. So the point here is to illustrate women are critical for reform movements, but they fall on both sides of any given debate. Please advance to the next slide entitled Education. Another reform movement was the increase of funding for public education. Support for free education gradually supported by wealthy people was used to provide skills necessary for the workplace, to fight immorality, and to create an educated citizenry who could vote intelligently. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Tax-supported public education triumphed between 1825 to 1850. However, there was no system of public education in the South until after the Civil War. And laborers increasingly demanded education for children, but this depended on the state. Education was also pushed because of manhood suffrage, which was one of the most important issues in Andrew Jackson's day. The ability to vote pushed free education. One reformer I want you to know is Horace Mann, who argued that the key to broader reform was better education, and he helped establish state schools to train teachers, and he influenced the spread to other states, and impressive improvements were made. Another reformer was Noah Webster. His dictionary helped standardize American English, and his readers and grammar books were used by millions of children. And this was partly designed to promote patriotism, but also to assimilate immigrants. William H. McGuffey created grad school readers, which were first published in the 1830s and produced or sold 122 million copies to educate grade school children. They contained lessons, again, which emphasized morality, patriotism, and idealism. With regards to higher education, the Second Great Awakening helped create many small denominational liberal arts colleges, especially in the Midwest. Women's schools and secondary education gained some respectability after the 1820s to help fulfill the role of Republican motherhood. In order to train virtuous educated mothers, Emma Willard established in 1821 the Troy, New York Female Seminary and she brought higher education to hundreds of women who in turn educated their children. Lastly, Oberlin College was an institution of higher learning open to both men and women, as well as African Americans. The point is that there is a long continuity in American history pushing to reform higher education, or education in general. So if some politician or media personality calls you a snowflake for disliking being exploited and saddled with massive debt or having poor public schools, you can tell them this type of protest is American as apple pie. Please advance to the last slide entitled Other Reforms. The American Peace Society agitated for peace and gained momentum in the pre-Civil War years. This was linked with the European Crusade and made promising progress until the Crimean War and then the American Civil War. Dorothea Dix worked to improve the treatment of the mentally handicapped, 
She traveled some 60,000 miles in eight years, compiling reports of squalid conditions from first-hand experiences in poorhouses and basements where the insane were often kept in chains. Her efforts resulted in improved conditions as well as an increased acceptance that the demented were not willfully perverse but mentally ill. In total, her efforts led 15 states to create new hospitals and asylums, and later, she was appointed superintendent of women nurses for the Union forces during the Civil War, and she worked so forcefully for the care of soldiers that she was nicknamed Dragon Dicks. So, why did I spend all this time talking about reformers? Because history shows us that one person can change the world and that groups of people can change the world when they sacrifice for what they believe in, so we should thank them and follow their example. Well, that is all I have for you today. Please make good decisions, keep yourself safe, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.